Um, but I don't know if you've ever really noticed this, but there's something very unusual about the actual Christmas stories that are recorded in the New Testament. Uh, there's two of the four Gospels record the, the Christmas story. Um, Mark and John do not say anything about the birth. Matthew and Luke record them. And Matthew and Luke, um, before they get into the Christmas story part of it, they don't really begin there. They don't begin with, you know, once upon a time and a baby in a manger, you know, that, that kind of deal. They both start someplace totally different. So you kind of have to ask yourself, why? Why, why don't they start with the birth? It's as if Matthew and Luke realize that the story they're about to tell, not just the birth story, but the whole story of this guy Jesus is so unusual, it's so unlike anything that you and I will have ever heard before, that we, they can't begin to tell the story in like a normal way. They know how we humans are, and we'll get wrapped up in, the, in all the excitement of the story, the, the baby and this grows up to be this teacher and does miracles and the power, and there's the tension always between the good guys and the bad guys, you know, and Jesus and his disciples are like the good guys, and the Pharisees are like the stormtroopers, you know, they're like, it's, you know, like Star Wars, and there's this epic story. Um, but it's like Matthew and Luke knew that before we start the story, we've got to give the audience kind of a heads up. We've got to let them know that this is not just another story. This is not just another religion is born. This is not just the Old Testament part two. This is not just there's a new prophet in town. They lived with Jesus. They saw his life. They heard his teaching. They witnessed his death and resurrection. It's as if both said, uh, we want our audience to know that this story is very, very different. It's unique. And don't make the mistake of lumping this story in with all the other religious teachers and all the other kind of faith systems around. This is unique. It's different. And so as they begin the story, it's almost like they do a little aside. They say, come here, let me tell you the story. But first, got to make something clear. This is not your normal kind of deal. Before the baby, before the manger, before the star, before the warm and fuzzy, before the silent night, you got to get this big picture about what this story is all about. Because this is big. This is major. It's like no other story that's ever been told. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Let me give you a little background here. Matthew is one of the 12 disciples. He's a Jewish guy. And he wrote uh, what most scholars believe he wrote his gospel to a Jewish audience. And the reason they believe that is because he had lots of, issue, lots of details related to Judaism and the Jewish faith that the, none, none of the other writers include in their gospel. It was almost like he's writing to a Jewish crowd. If you remember about Matthew, he was a tax collector. Now, people in the IRS are not popular even today, but back then it was worse. The way this would work would be a tax collector would um, decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of work in this region, and they would basically make a bid to the occupying government, which was the Romans. So the Romans were not good guys. They controlled most of the world at the time. Um, the Jewish people were not free. They were under the oppression of this foreign culture, and uh, they collected the taxes. And so what a, a Jewish person would do they would basically align themselves with the enemy, with the Romans, and they would say to the Romans, I believe I can get this amount of money out of this city or this region. They would bid it. And the Romans would say, okay, we're going to take your bid. Everything above that that they got from collecting taxes, that the tax collectors could keep on their own. It was kind of like their uh, commission, if you will. But no one really knew, except for the Romans and the tax collector, how much they'd actually bid. So they could come to your house and tell you owed X amount of taxes, and you have no way of knowing if this was the actual amount you owed, or this was, you know, five times the amount based on the tax collector wanting to keep it for himself. 
they also, if you didn't pay, they had the Roman army at their disposal to collect the taxes. So if you didn't pay, you'd become and your house destroyed and your family taken away as slaves and it wasn't a good deal. So these guys were not popular people. And in essence, they had made a very destructive choice. They had chosen greed, they had chosen riches, they had chosen influence, they had chosen power over their own people, over their friends, over their family. They were not even allowed to go to the temple and, and worship because they were considered unclean. They associated with Gentile people. And because they couldn't go to the temple, it was impossible in the Jewish culture. Now, it was impossible for them to ever be right with God. So they've chosen to be ostracized from God for eternity in favor of current kind of world, you know, power and, and pleasure and money and those kinds of things. So this is a pretty interesting choice that Matthew has made. And yet Jesus calls him to be one of the 12 disciples and he writes this gospel. And here's the deal. Matthew writes to Jews and he knows that Jews are going to say, okay, if you say this guy, Jesus, is the Messiah, then we know based on Jewish culture and Jewish uh, law that he has to be connected to the line of David. He has to be connected to the, the family heritage of David. And so because Matthew knows they're going to want to see this, Matthew says, okay, I'm going to build this case. I'm going to show you the lineage show you the family line of how David and Jesus are related. So no kidding, the, the passage you just heard in that song, all the, this person begat, this person begat, that's what we're going to talk about for the next, like, four weekends. But before you decide you're going to go to another church for this Christmas season, um, hear me out. Because Matthew does something very unusual in, in this uh, family lineage. Now, it was not unusual for a famous person to have a genealogy for their life. In fact, it was very normal. Uh, if you go back and look at the ancient world, kings and emperors and pr uh, powerful, influential people, they had um, uh, genealogies that were written about them. What was unusual was, what, what, and what shows that Matthew is up to something, what shows that he has an agenda and, and he's trying to give a context for the story he's about to tell, is what he does with his genealogy. He puts some things in this ge genealogy that are kind of in your face that are supposed to remind us and show us that this Jesus is not just a nice guy. He's not just an interesting teacher, but he's much more than that. In fact, again, he's like saying, this is like nothing you've ever seen. This is like nothing that's ever happened before. This guy, his movement is unique. It's special. Let me point out a couple things that are unique about this genealogy. First of all, Again, there are lots of genealogies, but the genealogies were always about kings and emperors and powerful people. They were the ones that could afford to have historians who would write about their families. It was an expensive thing to create a book in those days. Books weren't like, we don't have Barnes and Noble, you could go down and buy books. Books were uh, handed out generation to generation. It was a very expensive thing to create a book. Only wealthy, powerful, successful, uh, rich people could do this. There were, you know, the, people didn't walk around making detailed histories of Jewish peasant carpenters. In fact, as far as we know, this is the only one uh, that ever existed. There were no genealogies about fishermen, no genealogies about shepherds, no de genealogies about the normal people, you know, McDonald's employees, nothing like that. The only genealogies exist were for spectacular people, influential people. That's the first thing that's unique about this genealogy. Second one is when kings and emperors would hire historians, they would be doing that to link their family, their line, their uh, place on the throne back to the family that originally started that dynasty to show why they should be king, to show that their throne was, uh, was theirs. But oftentimes in these genealogies, there would be gaps in the genealogy. You'd see, well, here's a grandfather, and then you'd see there's a grandson. You'd think, well, there's somebody missing there. There's, uh, historians would be frustrated. There's too few people for the amount of years 
that are uh, encompassed there. And then as they would research, the historians discovered that what would happen would be the people would actually leave people out of their family line. There were people who maybe uh, the, that were an embarrassment to the king or to the emperor, and so they would leave them out. They would just tell the historian, you know, as they were writing, they, they would show them the draft. They'd go, you know, let's, don't include that guy. Let's just, let's just leave him out. I mean, didn't anybody have any family members like that where you're like, um, no, it's, we spell our Carter different than they spell theirs. It's, um, these kings would want to make sure they're not publicly associated with criminals and immoral people, scandals, people with this, you know, colorful checkered pasts. And so Matthew, interestingly, this is what's unique, goes out of his way to make sure his audience doesn't miss the fact that Jesus comes from a long line of people who are a mess. That would be an embarrassment to you and I, let alone to God in human flesh. These people would be, they'd be scandalous to normal, moral, nice people, let alone people that grew up in a strict Jewish culture like Jesus did. I mean, there are stories in his in his lineage, there are R-rated NC-17 stories, the kind that, you, you know, that's not really comfortable to talk about in church. These are folks that are related to Jesus. Matthew makes it a point to bring them out. Third thing that's unique about his genealogy is that um, uh, most of the time genealogies would be all men. Women were not very well thought of in the ancient world. And so it would be all the men, this father who had this son, who had this person and this son. But there are several women mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. But here's the problem. They're the wrong women. They're not the women you'd want to be associated with. Matthew goes out of his way to make sure that we know, you and I know, that in Jesus' lineage, in the family of Jesus, of the Messiah, of God in human flesh, there are some grade A mess-ups. There are some people who are, you know, the kind of sinners that regular sinners look at and go, whoa, now that's really sinning. Um, these are the people, they're like spectacular sinners. And Matthew goes out of his way to show, then instead of skipping over these folks, or leaving them out, he makes it a point to know that we know they're there. Why? Why does he do these things? Again, Matthew does not want his audience to miss the point. This is not just another teacher. This is not just another religious leader that's come along. But this is someone who's very unique, with a unique purpose and a unique connection to God. And the, the, part, the, the, the part about those people in his lineage that are a mess, the people in his dysfunctional family... But that's the, actually the reason he came, was for those kinds of people. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read part of this passage. Starts out in verse 1. This is the part you always skip when you read through the Bible in a year or something. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Again, he's connecting it to the family of David. The son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now already there's some colorful stories in here. Abraham was a guy who lied several times, said his wife was actually his sister, then she would be taken into the harem of these other kings. It was kind of a weird deal. Jacob, his, actually, his name means liar or deceiver. He had all kinds of, he was a very shady character. So already you got some of that stuff. Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now again, why do you bring up this mother here? I mean, you didn't bring up any other mothers. Why this mother? There are no other mothers that he mentioned so far. Why bring up Tamar? And if you know this story, and some of you maybe don't, we're going to talk about this story next week. But if you know the story, this is one of those stories that's so scandalous, it's kind of embarrassing to talk about in church. I mean, this is one of those stories that, I mean, Matthew tells a story, and he's talking to a Jewish audience, and the Jewish audience would have all known about this story. And he says Tamar, and they're, gonna, they're like going, shh, 
don't say, you know, ixnay on the amarte. Don't talk about that. That's a, we're embarrassed about that story. We don't want to talk about that story. And he's saying, no, no, no. The Messiah is related to Tamar. And they're going, that's gross. Don't talk about, quit saying that name. Tamar, Tamar, Tamar. Go, stop it. But Matthew's going through this genealogy, and he makes it a point to bring out that this woman with the secret is, is in the family line of Jesus. Keep going. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Again, uh, why is he bringing up this mother again? He didn't bring up any other mothers except for Tamar. Now he brings up this mother, Rahab. Now Rahab has a nickname. Some of you might remember what it's Rahab the, yeah, not the nice moral woman. Not, that's not what she's known as. She's not a, known as a woman of purity and virtue. We're going to cover her story in a couple weeks. But this is Rahab. Like, why would you bring her up, Rahab? This is, and she's not even Jewish. She's a Canaanite. She was a person that no Jewish people were supposed to have in their heritage because they weren't supposed to intermarry with these pagan foreign people. She shouldn't be in anybody's lineage, let alone the Messiah's lineage, let alone the person who's God in human flesh. These are the people that you leave out, not the ones that you kind of bring up so that everybody sees. These are the ones you don't want anybody to know you're related to. Matthew's making it a point to go out of his way to show that these folks are in the line of God. And not only are they in the line of God, but God has chosen them. He's chosen these people to be part of the process of bringing Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, into the world, and thus the gospel into the world. Keep going. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and Ruth is another lady we mentioned, and her story is a little weird. She seems nice, but she was a Moabite, so she also wasn't a Jewish woman. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Okay, all the Jewish people are going, finally, you get to like a good story. King David, he's a hero. He killed Goliath, and he was the guy who made Israel into this great nation. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And some of you maybe remember this story. Uh, but it's a com- if you're a Jewish person, you're going, can't you just move on? Why do you have to mention this part again? I mean, David, Solomon, but oh, by the way, Solomon's mom used to be another dude's wife. And the reason she's not on the wife is, well, there was an affair, and then David killed her husband. And it, it's almost like Matthew's going along and going through the story and going, looky here, here's another scandal, let me bring this out. And it's interesting that I think Matthew, part of the reason Matthew's making this point is he's saying, of all of David's wives, and yes, David had several wives, of all of David's wives, God chose the child born of the wife that shouldn't have been his wife in the first place to be the one that carried on the line of Jesus. Pretty interesting. So what's going on? What's Matthew getting at? I mean, it seems unnecessary. Why can't you just make the point about Dave or these other people? Why, why do you put in the naughty stories? Um, why, why do you have to camp on those parts of it that are embarrassing? I mean, you talk about David. He's a hero. Why do you have to bring in the stuff that he did wrong? I mean, what's the point? Why do this? I think it's this. I think that Matthew lived in a culture, very much like we live in a culture, where the focus the religious focus for people who were trying to get right with God was to be good. They lived in a culture where you you got close to God, you had your eternity secure in heaven by kind of building your relationship with God on a platform of goodness, on being good, on doing the right kinds of things, on, on good deeds and good behavior and avoiding the bad stuff. 
And so you'd say, I'm, you know, I got this list of things that I've done, and I'm better than that person over there. And, and so, God, that should make me okay with you. And, and so, you know, answer my prayers and, and take me to heaven when I die. This approach to God, just like in our culture today, in their culture, was based on goodness, on personal righteousness. That was the way it worked. And again, that's the way it works today. Several uh, months ago, we did a series here called How Good is Good Enough, and we did a man on the street interview where we invited people to ask them a question, you know, um, how, how do, you, do you believe in heaven? And if they said yes, we'd say, well, how do you get there? Nine people out of ten said you get there by being a good person. That's the way we tend to think. And we go to God and we say, God, you know, nobody's perfect, and I never killed anybody, and I know I'm better than that guy, or I know I'm better than that person at work, I know I'm better than my dad was, and we compare, we say, you know, on the comparison thing, I seem to be okay. I pay my taxes. I'm in church today. I don't really want to be, but I'm here. And I try to be a good parent, and I keep the ten, most of the commandments. I keep most of the commandments most of the time. And, you know, God, that should be enough. Answer my prayers, and when I die, I should go to heaven. That, that should be good. I'm a good person. Matthew lived in a culture just like that. It was about being good. And here's his concern. He's about to launch into a story of a guy named Jesus, and he's about to tell the Christmas story. He's about to talk about a baby in a manger and all that stuff. Matthew did not want his audience to think for one minute that this Jesus and the movement he starts is just more of the same, more of that same old story about being good. He's not another teacher that's coming along that say, you know, God sees you when you're sleeping and sees you when you wake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Matthew says he's going to go out of his way to say the story I'm about to tell you is not like the stories we've heard over and over and over. It's not a story about getting close to God by being good. That has nothing to do with it. This whole how good you are versus how bad you are and how good is good enough, that's not what this story is going to be all about, Matthew is saying. This story is very different. And Matthew says, to prove that to you, your God is going to go out of his way to weave into the Christmas story, to weave into the story of the Messiah, a whole bunch of people who have absolutely no platform of personal goodness, personal righteousness to stand on. Prostitutes and cheats and liars and adulterers and murderers, all kinds of people. And they are critical, they are integral to bringing the Messiah into the world. And Matthew says, you have to understand, this is good news. I think for Matthew personally, it was very good news. I think one of the reasons Matthew was so intent on communicating this message, because he was a guy with a past too. He was a guy like many of us who knew if it was up to his own goodness, it was up to his own choices, his own personal righteousness, he had no leg to stand on. He was in trouble. But he spent time with Jesus. And he discovered Jesus was offering an entirely new way to God. This brand new approach to God that was totally overwhelming. And Matthew sees in Jesus' own family, all kinds of folks just like him and just like me and just like you, who couldn't come to God on the basis of their own goodness and righteousness because they would never be good enough. So they knew if I'm going to get to God, it's going to take some other way. And that's the way that Jesus brought. See, the message of Christmas and the message of the gospel that Jesus preached is simply this. Getting close to God has nothing to do with how good you are but rather if you have a relationship with Jesus. There's another gospel written by a guy named John. Most scholars believe that John wrote his gospel last. And he kind of takes a different approach, but he kind of communicates the same thing. He, he sees that Matthew's already written the birth narrative and written the genealogy. John's one of those guys that on the outside, he looks, he looks gooder than Matthew. 
mean, he's a good Jewish kid. He grows up in a family that was related to the high priest. But it's interesting, John still understands that he's still not good enough. And he doesn't write a birth story because that's already been done. But he kind of opens his book, his gospel, with some deep theology, but it explains the same thing. John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word is John's reference, kind of theological reference for the person of Jesus. So he says, let's go all the way back, all the way back to the very, very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, with Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. And he goes, I I know this is kind of deep, heavy theology. Just kind of hang with me for a second. He says, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And and his audience goes, now what? What what are you saying? Wait a minute. You know, I know like Jesus is light. Yeah, yeah, we've heard that before. But shining in the darkness, I mean, it sounds like you're saying that when Jesus came into the world, the whole world was dark. I mean, surely you know they were good people, righteous people in the world, just like there are now. Good people, righteous people doing good stuff. Surely you know, I mean, this has got to be an overstatement, right? To which Matthew and John would say, no, that's the truth. That's what we're trying to say. That's the point we're trying to make. We live in a world where there are lots of shades of gray. We live in a world where I compare me to you and you to me and ourselves to others. We live in a world where we look better than some and not as good as others. We live in a world where we think God factors all that in and where my good deeds count for something in my relationship with God. But what Matthew and John are trying to say is, we we need to be crystal clear on this thing. Before we do the rest of the story of this guy, Jesus, you have to understand that those other things about good and comparing, that doesn't work. That when Jesus came into the world, the whole world was dark, just like it is now. Our eyes are so adjusted to the darkness that we see in shades of gray. But from the perspective of heaven, it's just dark. That's why Paul in the New Testament said, there's no one that's ever lived that is good, not one person that's really good. Now you say to yourself, that just sounds so extreme. I mean, I'm a good person. It sounds so extreme. To which Matthew and John would say, yes, that's why this is such an incredible story. Because it's different than anything you've ever heard. It's different than anything you've ever been taught. It's different than any other faith system. Along comes this guy who says the good, bad thing, that whole thing that we kind of operate on, that really doesn't matter. And when you understand the contrast between the faith that Jesus was communicating and the other systems that are around, you understand the significance of this guy, who he really is, this guy Jesus and what he preached and why this gospel really is good news. Verse 9 of John chapter 1. The true light, talking about Jesus, that gives light to every man. Implication is that every man needs this light, because we're in darkness, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And he came to that which was his own, the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. The idea is this. They came into this world where everybody's trying to be good. Everybody's trying to get close to God by being good. And some people are failing and so they feel like failures and they feel miserable and they feel like they're messing up all the time and other people are doing okay but they're so distracted by always trying to be good that both sides missed this guy when he came into the world. Verse 12, yet to all who received him, and I think he wants to clarify that. What does it mean to receive him? He says, to those who believed in his name. And when you think about that, don't think the way we think about belief. We think about belief as like an, like I believe guys walked on the moon but I've never seen it. I mean really personally seen it. I've never witnessed it personally. I've never been there. Um, we, we can't think of belief as an intellectual thing. They thought of it as an experiential thing. For example, 
um, on your wedding day, they may, might say to an, a, a young husband, have you known your wife yet? And the, you know, you'd say, well, what do you mean I haven't known her? I've been dating her for like two years. What do you mean do I know her? No, no, no. Know means have I been physically intimate with her. It was to know in the intellectual. It wasn't intellectual. It was an experiential, it was an existential kind of thing. So when they say when you believe in his name, it's about have you, have you put your trust in? Have you owned this? Are you in a relationship with this guy? To those who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. I wonder when Matthew and, and John write these kinds of words, I wonder if they tear up. I wonder if they think back. And think about the fact that they grew up in this system where they're always trying to be good all the time and realized they never were going to be good enough. And then they had this encounter with this guy who said, how good you are really doesn't matter. If you just place your trust in me, if you believe in me and enter into a relationship with me, you're in. You don't have to try to be good anymore. You don't have to always feel like a failure. You don't have to be all busy with the good, being good kind of system. We all, you know, they walked with this guy. They witnessed his death, his resurrection. Sometime in there, a light, light bulb went on for them. And they realized it's not about earning. It's about a gift. And they saw this family line that he had, this dysfunctional family. And they realized they're all in too, not because of anything they did. Because, because they've been offered this gift. Verse 14, the word became flesh. In other words, Jesus, be, he became a man, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. What did he come with, from the Father with? He came full of grace and truth. From the fullness of his grace, we have received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I think he's saying that to say, look, he didn't come like you expect. If this, It's all about being good, this God to come. He's about, you know, he's full of condemnation. He's full of anger. He's full of judgment. No, full of rules. No, no, no. He came full of love and grace and forgiveness. See, the story for, of Christmas is a story of a paradigm shift. It was told to a culture just like our own culture where the way to get to God was about being good, about earning it. Here's some things you got to do. Here's some things you got to stop doing. So what Matthew and John feared is that we're going to tell you the story about this guy and the movement he starts, but this is not more of the same. This is different than everything that there ever has been and everything that there is. Now, this is different than every other faith system that you know. They're all about doing your best and hoping that that's enough for God. Matthew and John say this is something that's totally different. This is about receiving life as a gift through putting your trust in Christ and what he did on the cross and entering into a relationship with him. The message of Christmas and the gospel that Jesus preached is getting close to God has nothing to do with how good you are, but rather if you have a relationship with Jesus which is established by placing your trust in him as Savior and Lord. It's interesting. You know, when Jesus came, he didn't dumb down the idea of being good. In fact, he raised the bar. He said to people, you've heard it said you shouldn't be a murderer. And everybody go, yeah, that's right. I, never, never, I haven't killed anybody. He'd say, you know, if you've, if you've looked at somebody in your heart with hatred, that's as good as murder. He said to people, you've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. And all the guys went, never touched her. I never touched her. And he said, well, if you've wanted to touch her in your heart, that's as good as committing adultery. See, what Jesus was trying to communicate is, look, we're all a mess. We're all broken. It doesn't matter how much good and bad stuff you've done. We're all broken. We're all dark. But instead of condemning us, he didn't do that. He just offered forgiveness. 
See, to condemn men and women for sin would be like condemning the sun for being hot or water for being wet. What's the point? It's what we are. We are sinners. But it is because of what we are that moved God to send not a lawgiver, not just a good teacher, not just a miracle worker, but a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So let me ask you, where are you this Christmas? Are you one of the you know, millions of men and women in America who do the Christmas thing every year, but for all intents and purposes have really missed the message of Christmas? And for you, it's been about being good. That's how you get close to God. That's how you get to heaven. Or at least, not so bad. Or are we men and women who say, I know that I cannot approach you on a platform of my own goodness because I'll never be that good. But I can approach you on a platform of your love and your grace and your forgiveness through a relationship, which is a gift, with your son Jesus. That's the message of Christmas. And John and Matthew say, before we can launch into the story of this guy, we need to be clear up front that this is not a typical kind of religion deal. This is a new thing. This is a new day. It's about relationship. So where do you stand on this? I think for many of us, maybe we've you know, grown up in America and we'd say, you know, I, I believe, you know, I believe Jesus is who he says he is, but I believe in God. And I'm trying to be a good person. We always kind of slide, slide that in. I, I'm trying to be good. Maybe for the first time this Christmas we'll understand that that just really isn't what it's about. That it's about placing our faith and trust in Christ and what he did on the cross to take away our sin. And that we are offered a gift to live in relationship with him. And we can let go of the religion thing once and for all and enter into relationship. That's what's so remarkable about this message that Matthew and John are communicating. And they had to make sure we got it because for those who receive him, to them he gave the right to become sons and daughters of God. Would you pray with me? And while you have your head, heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm going to ask just um, to kind of process something with me, kind of in the quietness of your personal space there. Um, see, I think for many of us, we grew up in kind of faith, exposed to some kind of faith, a religious system. And if I ask you today, kind of when did you become a Christian? When did you enter into this relationship with Christ? You might say to yourself, you know, well, we just didn't do that in my family. We didn't do that in my church. We didn't do that kind of in the, you know, in the, way, the way I grew up. I mean, I, you know, I just I did certain religious hoops when I was a kid and I was in. You know, I didn't. And yet if I ask you if you're married, um, you know, when did you get married? You'd say, you wouldn't say, oh, well, I think I've always been married. Or you wouldn't say, um, well, it was somewhere between, you know, 2000 and 2004 that I got married. No, you have a date and a time you can point to. Jesus, when he asked people to be his followers, they had to make a choice to follow him, to enter into relationship with him. And it's important for all of us that we understand there's got to be a point in time where we let go of the religion thing and we enter into relationship. And uh, maybe this Christmas season will be the first time for some of us where we can kind of point to a date, point to a time. December 2005, that's where I kind of let the religion thing go. And there's nothing magic 
It's just about praying a simple prayer, something like, Father, um, I realize that I cannot come to you on a platform of my own goodness, my own righteousness. I'll never be good enough. I'm like Matthew. I'm like those people listed in the genealogy. I've got some skeletons in my closet. I've made some mistakes. But I realize now that it's not about being good. It's not about jumping through certain religious hoops, not about going through certain rituals. It's not about anything my parents did for me. It's about my personal decision to trust in you, to enter into a relationship with you, to invite you into my life, to say, I am a broken person, I am a sinner, but what you did for me on the cross makes the way for me to enter into a relationship with you. And there's nothing I have to do to earn it, it's just a gift. And I want to accept that gift today and enter into a relationship with you. And it's a place of starting there. For many of us, it's, uh, there's also a next step we need to take. Just like when you get married, you have a ceremony, you put on a wedding ring. We need to, talk to, we need to tell somebody. We need to go further. We need to um, uh, check out baptism, whatever we need to do that next step. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God who does not expect us to come to you on a platform of our behavior. Because I know for myself, I would, I would fall so far short. It would just be a life of despair and discouragement, of feeling like a failure every day. But I thank you that you're a God that says, it's not about my behaviors, it's about having a relationship with you. And uh, I thank you that you make that free and accessible to anybody and everybody as a gift, no matter where they are, no matter what they've done. God, we thank you for your amazing grace and love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we close the service, we're gonna do something a little different. It's kind of a, kind of a church family thing. If you're um, a guest with us, really, 